man, this morning, I, and I don't know really what the Lord is doing inside of me, but uh, I know that the Lord is at work in a, in a really unique way and uh, felt that verse in Philippians 1, I believe it's, I believe it's verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, um, where Paul says that I long for you with the affection of Jesus. And prior to that, he said, guys, every time I think about you, every time I remember you, I always remember you with joy. And every time I pray for you, I always pray for you, uh, thanking God for you, and, uh, and really just kind of felt that settling in in a deeper way this morning is just really, really beautiful, really, really sweet. We're going to miss you guys over the next three weeks. I say this all the time, and I really mean it. There is just, there is no other people, and there's no other place that we would ever want to be than the people of God known as Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. Um, thank you, all of you, for, uh, I'm, I'm kind of really speaking to the house folk today. Thank you for walking this journey with us. Thank you for uh, your steadfastness. Thank you for your grace and your patience and your kindness. Thank you for covering us and believing the best in us and believing the best in what God is doing in this house. Um, Thank you for not partnering with the spirit of the accuser and, and entering into slander and gossip. Thank you for not doing that. Thank you for praying for us. Uh, It's amazing to me when you look through at a deeper level the epistles. Paul was constantly asking for prayer. And, um, you know, earlier, I I think this is just characteristic of youthfulness in ministry and just youthfulness in life. Um, you're, You're not as aware of your limitations. You're not as aware of your limits. I used to have this really idiotic saying that I would say all the time. And, uh... And I would say this, you know, when, uh, when there would be a little cough that come on and Christy would go, are you, you getting sick? I said, Superman, don't get sick, girl. <laughs> Kidding me? Or, you know, it would be a long day. And she said, I said, Superman, don't get tired. And then I realized I'm not Superman. <laughs> uh, and I just realized, you know, understanding the maturity to look at limitations and say, you know, um, God actually designed us to get tired. I mean, and that's why he created things like Sabbath. And that's why he said things like, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. These things are healthy. And, and again, we're only 39 and 40, but thank God that we're learning some of these things now, as opposed to 49 and 50 and 59 and 60. We're learning, you know, it's, uh, uh, we're tired, we're, you know, weakness is a part of the Christian journey, and we're learning to adapt and adopt rhythms that, that help to keep us relying on Jesus, like Christy said. Um, we're going to go into Philippians chapter 3 today, and I'm going to ask that you pray for me, because I honestly, I don't know what's going to come out. And you know, there's some things in all the Philippians, but there's some things in Philippians chapter 3 that, that could just, it could be a little tough to, to, to muddle our way through. And, um, and I want to make sure that I package things the right way, because as I'm coming to learn, guys, I, I really, I don't package things the, the best way all the time. 
and, uh, and that's been to my detriment, and that, that kind of gets me in trouble a lot of times. So I'm, I'm working through that. As you guys give me grace to mature, um, I'm asking the Lord to help me package and communicate and frame these incredible and powerful truths that are relevant to our context in such a way that, that we can take them and we can swallow them and digest them and they produce fruit in our lives. Um, Philippians chapter 3, let's, let's, uh, let's submit this to the Lord and then we'll go from here. Lord, um, thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. And, and thank you for the spirit of grace that is, that is here in this house, that is, that is so prevalent. And um, Father, as we are submitting our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word, the plumb line and the anchor of truth, Father, we ask that um, <clears throat> through clay vessels and through flawed vessels, where things don't come out just the right way in the short amount of time that we have, Father, we ask for the spirit of truth to guide us and to shape and form us, continue to shape and form us into the people of God that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, let's take a look here. I'm going to do something we've not done in the first three messages of this series. We're going to read the entire text. to get. We're not going to read it together. I'll read it. You can read along. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10. And then, um, by the way, those of you guys who are joining us today, man, thanks so much for coming and being with, here, uh, being with us here at Antioch Church. So, so grateful, so glad that you're here with us. We actually have our niece uh, Elizabeth Morales, who is with us for an entire year. So, man, so awesome and so delighted, so glad that you're with us, sweetie. It's going to be a great year. So let's read all of chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 together. I'm going to say just a couple of thoughts about the process of biblical interpretation. I'm going to say a few words about... Um, you know, the rigors of not only studying Scripture, but also preaching and communicating Scripture. And then we're going to get into some things that we're going to find in verses 1 through 10. All right, let's, let's take a look at this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Man, Paul, how many times is he going to tell us to rejoice? And it's not over yet. We're going to find this in chapter 4, too. He's going to tell us again, multiple times, rejoice. And if you haven't caught yet that this is a major theme in the book of Philippians, this is a major predominant theme. Writing from a jail cell, Paul is saying that joy in Christ is something that we can possess as believers regardless of external situations and seasons and circumstances. He says, it is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. <laughs> I love it. This is Paul. This is their father in the faith. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit and we who boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though myself, I have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, 
I have more. (laughs) Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness that is based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is God's word. All right. um, You know, one of the things that I love about the way that we are preaching from the scriptures now, um, when you preach topically, you can really stay within the wheelhouse of things that you enjoy. And when you preach topically, you can, you can select topics that uh, are fun, like dessert at the buffet line. And, um, but when you say, hey, we're going to preach you know, from a book, and we're going to tackle things that we probably would not intuitively tackle, it forces you to get in and wrestle with things. It forces you to take the entirety of the whole counsel of Scripture, which is actually the way that we are supposed to read the Bible. Now, I grew up, and I don't knock this, because in some ways it was, it was very formative for me, but I would cherry pick all the great verses. I mean, I read through the Psalms and I highlight all the verses that talked about how God would do wonderful things for me and all the other things like, you know, where, where David was saying, God, how long, how long, oh Lord, will you continue to forget me forever? I wouldn't highlight those. <laughs> those aren't the verses that I, that I want to speak over my life. But those verses are a part of what God has given to us to help guide us and form us and shape us in the Christian life and faith and the journey of being people that follow Christ and desire to know Christ. So, three very, very simple ways for you, just tools for you as you study the scriptures, as you take a book. And by the way, I really, if you haven't been following with us in the book of Philippians, guys, come on, (laughs) do it. Read Philippians. It's a good book. Um, What a great way to just put yourself in alignment 
with what God is speaking to the people that you're connected to. And the beautiful thing about something like Philippians is you could read that book, you could read that every day. You could read it every day. And here's what, here's what you will find and here's what I found. When you do that, you actually begin to see things that you would not intuitively see when you read a book from its beginning till its end. And when you read it multiple times, I promise you, you will see things come alive. And then what happens is these messages that come forth, they simply reinforce or they simply open your eyes then to take with you in your personal study and, and, and praying through the book. Here's another thing that's great. And there's so many great verses in Philippians. Pray the scriptures. Pray the scriptures. So one of the things that we do as a staff is we pray together. We start our day in prayer every day. We've just been praying the book of Philippians because that's what we're preaching through. That's what we're living in. That's what we're allowing God to speak to us through in this season. In the next season, we'll find another book that we, we ask the Lord to guide us through. And, um, and we'll begin praying through that book. And as you pray into that, it gets in you in a different way and in a deeper way. And also, I find that there's just revelation that begins to unfold when you pray the scriptures. All right, three very, really simple tools is when you read the scriptures, you want to practice observation, you want to practice interpretation, and you want to practice application. And really, that's a great little three-point, you know, for all of you preachers and teachers out there, for those of you guys leading Bible studies, small groups, for whatever it is that you're doing, simplest thing that you can ever do is take a passage, read it, meditate on it, find some supplemental, good, trustworthy supplemental resources, and we can always help you with those things, and you want to, you want to practice observation, interpretation, application, all right? In the observation stage, you're, 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 you're looking for basic level things, like, and, and Jonathan was, did a great job when he started off this series. He was basically mapping out for us observations about the book of Philippians, this is who it was written to. This is who it was written by. This is when it was written. This is why it was written. This was, this was the situation in life that was happening in the church at that time. Because what we fail to understand and what has not been taught to us as often is that everything in the scriptures were written to a situation and a setting in life. It was, it was written to a particular situation, a historical context. And so what we'd like to do is we actually like to take our interpretation of that historical context and apply it to our own, and that's actually poor Bible study. That's, 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 that's not handling the scriptures faithfully. We have to begin with what the original meaning and the original situation and the original purpose and the original context were with all of its nuances. And then what we do is then through multiple tools, we get into uh, interpretation. What did this mean? What was the meaning of this? Not what do I think this means to me. How many times have you guys been in a Bible study and the Bible group leader opened up and said, what does that mean to you? And everybody says, well, this is what this means to me. And, and then we get into this weird, it's almost like this pluralistic relativism. 
Well, that's okay because that's okay if that's what that means for you, because this is what this means for me. No, it, it, it means what it meant for those people, and it means what God meant for it to mean for that situation in life. And that's, that is where healthy interpretation begins. And this is why understanding certain words is important. And this is where, under, you know, and even as you're studying the scriptures, I would take two to three translations. I like the NIV personally. I think it's a really good, strong, d- dynamic translation, which just basically means it's communicating the big ideas. But then I would take a literal translation like the New American Standard or maybe the, the ESV or the RSV or the NRSV, and I would take those and say, this is more of a literal word-by-word translation. And then I would even take something that's super loose like the New Living and the Message, and I would look at all three of those together, and I would look at how different, different translators use different words, and now all all of a sudden you're starting to see a bigger picture unfold for you and this is just practicing good bible interpretation okay now i have come to really appreciate supplemental research of scholars and and there are good scholars out there and there are ones that i stay away from <laughs> and so you know the the goal is to find scholars that have devoted their lives you guys to becoming specialists. And, and listen, these people love Jesus. So I don't, I don't know what mindset has been developed in you, but you know, insidiously early on in my Christian journey, somewhere there was this anti-intellectual, there was this, you know, if you spend eight to 10 to 12 hours studying the archeological and historical and grammatical and linguistic and all these elements of scripture, well, there's no way you could really love God, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that? I mean, this is hard, hard work. And these, these people, men and women both for decades have gone through extreme, rigorous, rigorous study so that they can not only glorify God through that, but that they could, be a, they could faithfully present the scriptures to us in a way that brings us to Jesus and in a way that shapes and forms our lives, you guys. Okay? Now, Reader's Digest, popular Christianity, Reader's Digest, popular Christian books, they're easier to read. They're just easier to read. And certain commentaries, they're harder to read. But none of us really signed up for this for what's easy, did we? <laughs> and these things, they, they, do, they don't have to be at war with each other, is, is what I'm presenting. They don't have to be at war with each other. All right, so then finally we get to application. This is where we say, okay, Holy Spirit, based on what Paul was saying to the people of Philippi, based on, you know, after a while you go, you go, okay, I think this is a faithful interpretation of this. And then you start going, this looks and feels a lot like what I'm going through right now in my life. Like my situation in life mirrors or at least has some similar characteristics of their situation in life. And then you begin to realize there's nothing new under the sun. You begin to realize most of everything that we face in the human journey from loss to disappointment to grief to sorrow to jealousy to selfishness to idolatry to all of these things, the scriptures bring them out. 
And they bring them out because God in his beautiful, amazing mercy and through working through his people and working through traditions and working through religion and working through words and working through so many things that he uses at his disposal, he is inserting what the kingdom of heaven looks like in that situation of life that amazingly still echoes throughout every time period and every culture and every context. And we can go, well, there it is again. We're, we are living that. Are you with me this morning? All right, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through and highlight a couple of big things that we find here in verses one through 10. All of this stuff I should have said probably at the beginning of our Philippians series. Sorry about that. All right, let's take a look at verse one. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. Verse two, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Who's Paul talking about here? All three of those, those are all three. uh, He's talking about the same group of people and he's using three descriptions to identify the same group of people. Now, who are these people? Most likely, and if you read through First and Second Corinthians and the book of Galatians, there were a group of people that were going into kind of simultaneous or even after Paul would go in and preach the gospel to Gentiles and let them know that righteousness comes by faith alone, they would come in after Kim and they would subvert that message and say, no, if you're really going to have a relationship with God, if you're really going to have righteousness in God, if you're going to do it the right way, you got to do it the Jewish way, which means you got to get circumcised. And so this is where if you look at those dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, particularly mutilators of the flesh, he's talking about those of a circumcision group that are rolling around. They're Judaizers, and they're saying, nope, you guys, you guys kind of got sold a, uh, a partial deal. But if you want the full package, if you want the, you know, the, the complete being in Christ like us, then you got to do what we did. And you got to be circumcised. And most likely, this reference to dogs and evildoers are their Old Testament Psalms references, where if you guys recall, David and numerous authors within the Psalms, they would make references to the wicked, and they would reference them as evildoers, and sometimes they would reference them even as dogs. And so basically what Paul is saying, he's saying, this is evil. This mindset and this ideology that is coming in, that is pulling you away from the cross of Jesus, that is pulling you away from righteousness by faith alone. Guys, this is evil and it is dangerous. And that's why in other books, Paul gets very, very firm because these people have not infiltrated the Philippian church yet. But Paul was seeing what was happening and he was forecasting and he was saying, guys, watch out, watch out. Because these jokers have been following me all over the place and they're probably gonna try to come in and bring this ideology to you guys as well. Look at verse four or verse three. So he said, I'm sorry, verse three. So he says, it is we, we who are the circumcision. Now, it's interesting because he's refuting or he's addressing or he's giving a, a warning against a group that is essentially saying in order for you to have right standing with God, you need to be circumcised. 
and he is speaking to people clearly that are not circumcised, and he's saying, guys, we are the circumcision because Jesus definitively changed what circumcision means and what circumcision is. It is no longer an external rite. It is an internal reality where our heart has been cleansed and purified and where the, that, that, that outer layer of sin and carnality has been cut and removed from us by virtue of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why he can say, guys, we are the circumcision, those whose hearts have been penetrated with the scalpel of his love and his fire and his power and our hearts have been married to him we are the circumcision. Be at peace. And then he goes, and again, he uses three descriptors here to qualify or to identify what those who have faith in Jesus are. Number one, we are the circumcision who serve God by his spirit. That's, that's the first one. We serve God by his spirit. And we hear the echoes here of John 4, verse 21 through 24, when Jesus is kind of having a similar religious debate with a lady about where to worship and where the right people worship. And what does Jesus say? He says, God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. We who are the circumcision, it is we who worship God by the spirit of God. Now, before you begin interpreting that in a certain manner, well, that means that we have to have people singing in tongues right? That means that we have to have, you know, hyper-charismatic activity, right? I'm not doubting that. What I'm saying is we who serve God by his spirit, we who worship God by spirit and truth means it is we who are the people by the provenient grace of God that respond to God by the initial invitation of the spirit. We have to understand that anything and everything that we have or do in Christianity did not begin with us. That is paramount. Guys, that is fundamental to Christian faith and understanding. And one of the difficult things that I may present to us this morning is how much confidence we actually put in ourselves as it relates to the Christian faith and journey. This is, this, is a difficult, this is a difficult message to present to you guys. It's a difficult message for me as I examine my life and go, most of my Christian life has been defined by what I can do. Most of my Christian life has not been defined by we who serve God by his spirit. It has been defined by we who serve God by our own strength and charisma and, charisma and experience and education and ability and knowledge and opinion and giftings and talents. It has not been we who serve God by his spirit. It is we who boast in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be the people of God? It means, guys, we put our boast not, not in any of this. As amazing, as wonderful, and as much as I love it, I don't put my boast in that. We don't put our boast in how, wow, he can really preach the word. He's so articulate, he's so eloquent, she's so dynamic. We don't put our boast in that. We don't put our boast in our facilities, clearly. Huh? As a people, there's a lot of things that I could be proud of, and I am. There's a lot of things that when I roll around with other pastors, I like to, you know, put my chest on and go, well, you know, our people, our people you know. <laughs> and Paul is saying, hey, listen, 
what it means to be the circumcision, what it means to have hearts that are, that are, that are, that are divided in a good way, in a healthy way, that are pure before God, it means that we put our boast in Jesus. And one of our life group leaders say this, and I loved it. She said, listen, as long as these guys are preaching Jesus, she goes, I think I'm called here. And I love that. I love that. And I promise you, I promise you as your pastor and your friend, we're not going to stop preaching Jesus. And we're not, we're not going to stop building everything we do. This is why the table is so important. Because at the end of amazing experiences and at the end of whether, you know, sensational worship moments or not, at the end of those who just, you know, blow us away by their rhetoric or those that fall to the ground, at the end of it all, we can come to the table and say, Jesus, you bid me come. And Jesus, this entire family is built on you. And our faith was secured and passed on by you. And we're going to center. I mean, I've been in some messages, guys, where I've never heard the name of Jesus. I've been in some church services. I've never even heard Jesus mentioned and things like the discipline of the table is not some, you know, just this mindless religious tradition. It anchors us to what our faith is about. We would not be here. We would have no life in the spirit. We would have no worship songs to sing if it weren't for the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. I didn't expect this to like take me this long. And we who put no confidence in the flesh. Now, here, Paul begins to really unpack, and he is kind of practicing what he did in 2 Corinthians. Do you guys remember in 2 Corinthians where he started, it's almost like schizophrenic. He's like, man, I can't believe I'm doing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like totally boast. I'm going to boast in myself and show you how amazing I am. He's like, I can't even believe it. And then he's like, dude, Paul, what are you doing? He's kind of having this similar moment right here. And he's saying, listen, for all of these guys, for all of these guys who think, you know, that they've got it, and all these people that want to let you know how amazing they are, and how faithful Jews they are, and how Judaism is the bomb, he's like, listen, 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 listen. They don't hold a candle to me. I am the man. I was. I was the man. And this is what he says. Let's go on verse four. He says, um, so though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I love this. He goes, I have more. I have more. I have more. <laughs> you know, this is, this is probably awful, but I'm not going to see you guys in three weeks. So, you know. You know, some, there, ah. No, 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 no. This, this is like, this is not Bible. This is Jade. This is totally Jade. All right? This is, to, this is, this is totally Jade Austin Duncan right here. But, you know, when, when you start dealing with, with mindsets, you know, you start dealing with people that, that are like, you know, I, you know I'm, just, I'm, just, I just, I'm just not into all of this theological stuff that you're bringing. I'm not really sure where you're going with this. And I really, I really, you know, I really think that I know more than you. you know, none of us would ever say that, but that's really, guys, that would be like me like, making a Pop-Tart and going, now I can be on MasterChef because I know more than Gordon Ramsay. 
My daughter has this little uh, Casio keyboard that Poppy picked up at a garage sale. And it's one of those things that they light up the keys and you can like follow along and play songs. That would be like me going and playing one of those and going, Jonathan, bro, I got this now. I totally got this. (laughs) Don't worry, all of you guys. I have been rocking the Casio keyboard with, wait, wait, they do not light up. Don't worry, I, I, I got this. Right? Think about this, you guys. Think about this. This would be like me pulling out my Nerf gun and going like, oh, I am like an expert marksman now. So, John, let's go, man, me and you, bro. I'm going to take you. I, I've, I've done this. But we, like, think about this. Think about this. We don't carry that same attitude in any other realm of life, but then when it gets to church and Bible, and I've heard this, and this podcast speaker said this, and I picked up a little article here, and this is what I really believe here. It doesn't compute, guys. It doesn't compute. And this is essentially what Paul is saying. This is what Paul is saying. He is saying, guys, I have been in this thing from the moment I was born. Guys, I have studied with the best of the best. Guys, I wasn't half-heartedly in this. I was killing folks. I was all in on this thing. This wasn't a fad. I was killing folks. So, any of y'all killed folks? Shut up. I mean, that's my paraphrase. Right? So then he goes on. Look at verse 5. He says, now, we're getting into a lot of things that are going to mean some things for Jewish people that we probably wouldn't understand. But Paul basically lists out eight things, I think it's eight, seven things, four of which were involuntary, three of which were voluntary. What do I mean by this? Circumcised on the eighth day. This was, a, this was part of the Jewish law found in the book of Leviticus that we find this beginning in, with Abraham, that God commands Abraham to, to circumcise his sons and everyone in his family. And so Paul is essentially saying, guys, listen, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born into this. I was born a Jew. Now, this is important because some of these guys rolling around, you know, these guys, not all of them, but some of them were actually Jewish converts, which means they didn't get circumcised until later in life. I mean, props to you, man, that's painful. I'd much rather get circumcised on the eighth day than, you know, the 28th year. <laughs> but Paul is saying, I was born into this. I, did, I was not grandfathered in. Here's the next thing he says. I was of the people of Israel, which means all of our history, all of it, I'm connected to that. This is in my blood. This is in my bloodline. Third involuntary thing, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, if you get into the historical and the Old Testament, Benjamin was a very, very amazing tribe. Not only was he one of the beloved of Jacob, not only did the first king of Israel come out of Benjamin, not only was Jerusalem, the holy temple, placed in Benjamin. A lot of people think it's in Judah. It's not in Judah. It's actually in Benjamin. There's, there is some, you know, um, there's some things to be proud of in the line of Benjamin. And Paul is bringing that out. And then he goes on. He goes, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? He means that my parents were in this and their parents were in this and I come from a long line of people that made me live this thing out. Those are the involuntary things. The voluntary things, he goes on to say, he goes, in regard to the law, number one, I was a Pharisee. 
The Pharisees were the strictest religious and legal sect of that day. Now, Pharisees get a really bad rap, but we need to understand that the Pharisees were actually created to be protectors of the law. It started off as a very, very good thing. When a lot of uh, immorality and a lot of carnality was, was infiltrating Judaism after the exile, the Pharisees rose up and they said, listen, we got to protect what God gave us. And so, I mean, imagine, these guys were, these guys were the serious ones. And if we're really honest, there's a lot of Pharisee in all of us, too. As much as we hate that, as much as we want to, ah, Pharisees, that we're all religious about something. We're all legalistic about something, even if it is about not being legalistic. He goes, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. So that's number two, voluntary. Number three, as for righteousness based on the law. You know what that means? It means that every single iota of the law, the most inconvenient, the most difficult, the mo he goes, I did it all, guys. I did it all. And I took great pride in it. I took great pleasure in it. I gained a lot of value out of this. I gained a lot of identity out of this. I gained a huge sense of security out of this. I based my entire worldview on this. Much like a lot of us. So then he says this. He says, verse seven, but whatever were gains to me, out of all the things that I gave my life to, invested my time into, studied under Gamaliel, the top, the, the top scholar and the top religious leader of that day. And anything that, remember last week, verse, you know, chapter two, verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Don't take any of the privilege that has been given to you and leverage and exploit that privilege in a manner that makes you better than others. Don't take anything, so Paul is going through this amazing resume and essentially what he was saying was all those amazing things that I did and were given to me and all those things that I accomplished, I leveraged those for my own gain. And then he says, but then I found Jesus. But then in a moment of miraculous grace, in a moment of supernatural favor, Jesus appeared to me and everything changed. Everything changed. Now, guys, I want you to think about this because a lot of us are here right now, and I have grace for this. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about, I want you to think about devoting your entire life. And we're talking probably feasibly 12 to 14 hours of study a day every day for years in a certain way, in a certain manner of thinking, in a certain belief system, in a certain worldview. That's, that's, that's Paul, much like Nicodemus. And we could, we could pull Nicodemus out into this conversation if we want to. What's so impressive to me is, is the ruts that were put into Paul's mind. Do you guys know what I mean by that? You know, the more that you think on something and study something and the more you give yourself, it actually creates grooves in, the, in your brain physiologically in the way that you think. Imagine those things that were put into Paul after years and years and th hundreds of thousands of hours of study and in one moment he realized, I missed it. In one moment realized, I was killing people in the name of God, and I thought I was justified. Imagine, imagine 
killing people. I mean, you gotta, you gotta be all in to start killing folks and go, God told me to. God's happy about this. This is Paul. This is our friend Paul. And in one moment of encountering Jesus going, I was wrong. This is just this is just a humble submission, but I think I think our Christianity would probably go a lot further if we if we at least entertained the idea that we could be wrong. I know that's scary, and I know that some of our belief systems say that real faith is never ever admitting that you could be wrong. But I would like to conjecture that real faith is not putting faith in your ability to be right. And that real faith is not your ability to be certain about uncertain things. But real faith is saying, God, I'm going to remain humble and broken and open and honest. And I'm going to trust that you're right and I could be wrong. So I'm going to humbly ask that you would use every faculty from the word to the spirit to the people around me to scholars to religious tradition and guide me as I realize that I am super fallible and I really could be wrong and I could be killing people in your name and thinking it's right. I know this is a hard word, guys. But this is, this is the reality of what Paul faced. This is the reality of what he was wrestling with. And listen, I know it's, it, is, it is awfully scary to imagine that. And this is where I have been in the past two years. Do you guys realize that when you shake it all down, when you shake it all down, you guys, over 40% of our church have left because of, because of me being in this right here. You know what 40% of people leaving translates to? It translates to thousands of dollars and losing three people from our staff. That's what that translates to. But at the end of the day, here's, here's what matters. What matters is me saying, God, I'm willing to take everything I've learned, eight years of professional schooling, 30 years of following you, hundreds, un, untold hours of studying the scriptures, untold commentaries, I can't tell you how many revival services I've been in, how many prayer meetings I've been in. And I'm, listen, you need to hear me today. I'm not saying those things were wrong. I'm telling you today that God, that he just brought me to some altars and he brought me to some crucibles of faith and I realized that things that were coming out of me and things that were coming out of Antioch and things that were coming out of our movement were not creating healthy fruit. Now, does that mean that we scrap everything? No, in God's name, it doesn't mean that. But it means that we tread slowly and softly and humbly and graciously and we say, Jesus, for the sake of knowing you, I'm willing to scrap everything and I'm willing to say, I'm an empty vessel. Teach me and reteach me again. That's what that means. If you ever get the impression that I have certainty on uncertain things, and if you ever get the impression that I'm trying to like beat people up with theological jargon and that I got all my stuff together, thank you, Holy Ghost, right? That's, I wanna, that's not who I am. And I'll tell you, that's not who I want to be. I want to be a guy that if I'm 80 years old, like Nicodemus, 
You guys realize Nicodemus was an old man. And Nicodemus was just like Paul. Nicodemus was just like Paul in the strictest sect of the Pharisees. And that's why he goes to Jesus in the, in the nighttime in John chapter 3. And he says, clearly you've got something. I've devoted my entire life to this. He's an old man. And he says, you've got something that I don't know. And he's like, you've got to, you've got to teach me. Now imagine Jesus as a rabbi at this time is probably 30 years old. And Nicodemus is probably somewhere in his mid-60s to 70s. Let's just start there. Let's just start with the humility it takes to say, teach me. Let's just start with the humility that it takes to say, I may not have all of this figured out. This is why I think chapter 3 follows chapter 2, where Paul says, guys, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus, who showed us what the model of a Christian looks like. The model of a Christian is not someone who's got it all figured out. The model of a Christian, guys, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble here. The model of a Christian is not someone who, who like, steps away from saying things that could be honest and real. Hey, are you feeling bad? No, no, I'm not going to confess that. That's, that, that's not the Jesus way. That is not the Jesus way. What that is, is that is, a, that is a gross evolution and adaptation of a very good principle that has turned itself into a religious mechanism that is actually a cover-up of fear. That's what that is. I believe in positive confession, guys. I believe in the words of faith. What I do not believe in is propping up mechanisms that actually cover up the fear and the insecurity and the honesty that's inside of us that keeps us from putting our faith in God. Now, if we're honest, and this is, and I think that, I think that there are some teachings that I followed, guys, hook, line, and sinker. And they actually, they actually helped me, and they produced some good things, and they produced products, and they produced a measure of fruit in the short term. They really did. But in the long-term reality of following Christ for multiple decades, I put more confidence in my ability to say the right things. I put more confidence in my ability to confess, to believe, to pray, to fast, to intercede, to walk in my authority, and I put very little confidence in God. Those things have value to the degree that they lead us to put our trust in God. To put our faith in God. Our faith very simply means our trust. Our trust means I am relying on you and I am taking my hands off. This, this is not some form of, of God is sovereign so I'm just going to check out and be passive. That is not what I'm saying. It is a mutual relationship between us and the Father and the Son and the Spirit whereby we lean on who God is, trusting in who He is, not trusting in our ability to control a situation. What happens? What happens to us? What happens to our faith? When the situation does not turn out in the way that we have determined our situation to be. Because there's, there's, there's essentially only three results, okay? Result number one is that we say, that's fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try harder. How many of you guys have been there? I've been there. 
Oh, I prayed, for, I prayed for healing, it didn't happen, I'm gonna try harder. Obviously, there's something wrong in me. I gotta find, I've gotta find more healing scriptures. Maybe, maybe, I, maybe I used the wrong translation. Maybe I, now I'm being funny, but maybe I missed a word when I was quoting it. Maybe there's sin in me. Maybe God doesn't like me as much as he likes somebody else who they got an answer. I don't, th- I don't see the fruit of God in any of that. I see performance. I see a lot of confidence in the flesh. Number two, what we see is we see people who walk away from faith and walk away from God altogether. How many of you guys have seen that? Hey, these guys told me, hey, I, I sent my $1,000 seed in. I got my water from the Dead Sea, you know. I, I got my special oil from Jerusalem. I laid, I put that oil, I took my, my prayer cloths, and I ain't get jack. What is up here? I got played. This is all a bunch of that, right? Garbage, as Paul would say. Think about this. See, the other, the other option is we either double down, we either double down and say, I'll show you, or what we do is we say, this is all fake. Everything is fake. None of it was true. None of it was right. And we walk away, not only from church and the people of God, not only from faith in itself, we walk away from God. Here's a third, here's a third option, is we say, teacher, teach me. We, we come like Nicodemus. You know what Jesus said to Nicodemus? He says, unless you're born again. And what, what we've always done is we've interpreted that and we said, well, you've got to be born. You've got to be saved. You've got to be saved from hell. You've got to pray the prayer. No, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus is you have to be born again. Your mind, your mind must be like a newborn child that as it comes out of the womb now can be marked with new impressions. Somehow, and listen, this can only happen by humility and submission and brokenness and teachability and trust made possible by the Holy Spirit where we say, God, I have believed things my entire life, but somehow by your grace, I need you to reform my mind. That's where we're at. And then Paul summarizes this in verse 10. And he says, guys, here's what's driving this whole train. And guys, if I had time, I'd take you to Matthew chapter seven and I would show you how the most important things, Jesus says this. Jesus says, listen, you guys prophesied in my name and you cast out devils in my name, but you never knew me and I never knew you. I never knew you and you never knew me. Think about that. Is it possible that Jesus could be insinuating that the mark of maturity and the mark of knowing Christ is not the sensational and supernatural and spectacular things that we do in his name? Now, you have to hear me. I am not saying that those things are not good. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that maybe there's a little bit more of us in those things. And maybe our motivation in pursuing and chasing those things is a little bit off, maybe. We have to at least be open to that. I heard a very well-known speaker in our, in our circle, very well-known, I mean, like a shooting star right now. And he came off of a service, and this is what he said, and I thought, this is, this is why we need what we're doing. 
And he said, man, I'm so drunk in the Holy Spirit right now. I want to take you guys to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He goes, now, everybody talks about, oh, man, the most important thing about this verse, this chapter is love. He goes, forget about the love stuff. He goes, I'm really, I'm really fascinated with the fact that we can speak in the tongues of angels. And I'm going, you're doing it right now. Do you, do you understand this? Paul says, you could speak in the tongues of angels. You can cast devils out. You can raise people from the dead. You can be a supernatural person of faith. But man, if you don't love your brother or sister, this is the essential message of the Christian faith and movement. It's what the entire New Testament is all about. I'm not saying that because I'm angry. I'm grieved. I'm grieved, you guys. I'm grieved, and I'm grieved because I believe the heart of the Father is grieved. That we care more about things that are, that are doing something to validate something that is not whole, or something that is, that is, maybe it's curious, or maybe, I don't know what it is. But all I know is that if, if we have not love, guys, those things mean nothing. They mean nothing. Now with love, they can be tools for the kingdom of God to advance. With love, they can be an opportunity for the gospel to go deep in people's lives. With love, but we have to have love. We have to. And I'm here to tell you today, it is harder to love people that are not like you than it is to raise the dead. I promise you. It is more difficult to be patient, to be gracious, to be kind, to be gentle. It is more difficult to do that when you are sick or you are tired or you are hurting or you are immature or you're weak in your character. It is harder to do that than it is to pray for the sick and see them healed. Jesus, this is, these are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. Jesus said it, not me. Mark chapter two, you go read it. He said, healing you is no, this is easy. What is more difficult, to heal you or to get you to understand that you are forgiven by the powerful love of God flowing through me? Healing, pff, no big deal. You guys are probably so glad I'm leaving for three weeks. <laughs> Paul says, I want to know Christ and I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Lord, may we be able to say and pray the same. Let's stand to our feet this morning as we honor Jesus. We don't honor a tradition. We don't honor a religious formality. We honor Jesus. And we believe that somehow this bread and this juice point us to Jesus, that they remind us of the work of Jesus. They remind us of the life of Jesus. They remind us of our need for grace. Antioch, you must know before this is all said and done how deeply and affectionately I love you. I love you. You must also know how, how, how I have seen people so wounded by bad theology. also need to know guys I'm going I've changed the entire course of my life and I've changed it for this church I wanted to be a, 
I mean, even up to a couple years ago, I was like, I'll just get, a, I'll get, I'll get another degree in leadership or in education. I'll put my eggs in that basket. If things don't work out with the church, man, I've got another skill set. I've said, no, man, I'm putting it all in the bag. I'm putting it all in the basket of the church. And I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my life to seeing the charismatic people of God, the apostolic and prophetic and charismatic people of God mature. I'm going to give my life to that. So y'all just need to be ready because in three weeks, I'm going to go get rested. I'm going to go get healed. I'm going to go get patched up. And then I'm going to come out with fire. I'm telling you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that, uh, man, it really is all lost, God, compared to knowing you. It really is all lost compared to, to living in community with your, with your people, your family, your sons and your daughters. With the overwhelming reality of humbling our lives and allowing you to shape us, change us, mold us, break us even. Jesus, you're so worth it. God, I wish that we had time to get into participating in the fellowship of sharing your sufferings. God, we don't have to be afraid of that. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to suffer with you while experiencing the power and the presence of your spirit in that suffering, while experiencing vindication and release and rescue from that suffering. But God, we know that you don't cause suffering. We know that you're not the author of it. We know that you're not putting that on us, but we know that when we walk through difficult things, you are present and you are using something that is awful to put something inside of us that looks like you, that stays for eternity. And God, I pray for my friends today. God, I pray for faith a faith that draws us to put our confidence in you, not in ourselves. Guys, let's come humbly and graciously to the table of the Lord today.